We are coming to this as we continue the vision of heritage, renewing that in 2020, as we consider the uh, vision now for the family. We're moving into that sphere uh, of and scope of our, of our time together. Genesis 17, a very important passage uh, of Scripture, beginning now at verse 1. I'm going to be reading uh, deliberately from the King James Version today, of which I'll explain in a little bit why I have done so, but it has to do with the word seed, you'll find there in verse 7. Now hear the word of God. When Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in the, their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which thou shalt keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in your house or bought with money, or any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, Thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall, be, shall her name be. And I will bless her, and I will give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, O oh, that Ishmaelite live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son, indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he begat. And I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall 
bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. O God in heaven, how thankful we are for your great and many mercies in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, your Son and Seed. And we come in his great name asking the Spirit of God to be poured out afresh upon us and anoint the preaching of your word that we might hear it with hearts of faith and receive those things into our lives and to communicate them unto our children and to our children's children. And we pray for the grace that we need this day to apply these things according to the truth of the Word of God. And pray that when we leave here, we may not leave the same as when we came. So be glorified to manifest the fruitfulness of your people's lives here upon the earth. And to see that fruitfulness continue through many generations until the coming of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Over the past 20 years, there's been an attempt in some of our circles to recover the biblical view of the family and the church and to bring them into harmony with one another. And while those objectives are certainly noble, the theology in many of those places fell so short of the biblical model that it often did more harm than it did good. The passage that we have set before us is a key passage that identifies a key family in Scripture and provides the base for the theology in how to understand the redeemed family. That's why we find this particular family a number of times in the New Testament, not only as examples to our own faith, but also examples how to live as husbands and wives and children. At the beginning of this passage, we see first of all that the husband, here Abraham, is the federal head and representative of his family. Verses 1 and 2, it was when Abraham was 99 years old that the Lord appeared to him and spoke with him. And he, the Lord said to Abraham, I will make a covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, this is the reiteration of a covenant that God began to work in established. He had spoken this in Genesis 12. He uh, established this in Genesis 15. He reiterates it again here in Genesis uh, 17. And we're going to find that here is the covenant unfolding that God has established with this man. He is the head of his household, and even the New Testament calls him the father of our faith, Romans 4. And so his role by his very place is established in the family from this position of a federal head. Now, another key principle that we see in verse 7, when he says, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, he goes on to then expound on that and between thy seed as well and their generations. It's an everlasting covenant that I'm making with you and your seed, Abraham. This is what God is saying. 
And we see there from that principle, and we find consistent throughout all of Scripture, that the smallest unit that God deals with covenantally is the family. Not merely an individual. We'll come back to that in just a moment. If we recall from the very beginning in Genesis 2, the man was made and he was called by God. His name was Adam. He had a mission that God had given them from, for the earth. He was made out of the earth and he was made in a mission in relation to the earth, to cultivate the earth. He was given spiritual instruction by God. And God established a relationship with Adam in the midst of two trees in the garden. A tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that relationship, which was symbolized in these two trees, we could call those two trees even the sacraments of the covenant. It had a sign in these physical spirits Things, these trees, but it also related to a reality to which it extended. And so here was this relationship that God established with Adam. And here was Adam as the first of all of mankind. In fact, his name means mankind. And he is the federal head of all of earthly creation in general and of all mankind specifically. Adam is our natural federal head. That's why when he fell, we all fell in Adam. But before that, Adam was created by God out of the dirt of ground and breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living being, and God assigned him the 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 responsibilities of the garden, and he told him to keep it and protect it, and he told him to cultivate it and to create and be an artist like God was, a creator there. And he had the responsibilities, he had the spiritual direction that God had given him about those trees. And all of that happened before woman came on the scene. Then God made woman and brought her into this context. In fact, woman, unlike man, was made out of the side of man. Not of the dirt, but the thing out of which we were made is for which we were made to the glory of God. So woman was made out of man for the man. was created in the context where man was already engaged in his God-given mission work and instructions under the headship of God. So when God brings the woman to the man, they join together. The two shall become one flesh. And children come forth. And we have a beautiful family. We have this beautiful uh, institution that God established in creation. And so we have the family engaged in the mission that God had given to man. Woman is man's helpmeet. That means a, a companion that is suitable to him. Which also means that man is a companion that's suitable to her. Man and wife, who were made in the image of the triune God, were to multiply and fill the earth with the image of God. 
And they were to fill the earth with the glory of God as rulers of the earth and as priests in it, as we have already discussed. Rulers and priests. A royal priesthood. Taking now all of the creation's praise and putting voice to it as they bring as a priest comes together and comes into the temple before God in the sanctuary and then voices creation's praise. We are to take now God's generous wisdom and we are to take it out into the world and to exhibit the glory of God as we reflect them into this creation. Now after the fall... Things got complicated. In fact, sin always complicates things. And in every sinful situation, in every challenge that we have, sin complicates things drastically. This happy marriage would be filled with tension as the woman's bent now under the curse would be to rule over her husband. The mission work would now have enemies that stand against it so that man's work will be difficult and filled with many obstacles. Bringing forth children would have pain and difficulty as well. And everything that God had designed into the family would be affected by the fall. And the very things of which the husband and wife and children would bring them the greatest joy have now have a tension in it by the curse of God upon the fall. But not all would be lost. The image of God remained. It was marred, although severely marred, it remained. That means that the constitution and the design of man and woman still remained in them, but it would be drastically maligned and, and abused. God's design and plan for the family was for His glory. To represent Him before all of creation. And in all of creation throughout all of the earth. To show His Trinitarian nature. To show forth beauty of love. As the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And we have this Trinitarian love that was already going on for creation. He did not have to create us in order to show and exhibit love. We have here God's plan for the family was for His glory to, to not only show the forth beauty of love, but to show the oneness in the many, unity and diversity, harmony of different wills in a teamwork with common objectives. Submission and leadership. Different roles, but orchestrated into one comprehensive whole. All these things the family was designed to reveal about God. In order to recover that which had been lost in the fall, God set a plan in motion that would culminate in another Adam and his wife. 1 Corinthians 15, we read of this one called the last Adam, which is Christ. And his bride, the church, 
The passage we have set before us is part of that divine narrative. And here we have man, Abraham. And we have a wife, Sarah. And we are introduced ahead of time to one who would be born, Isaac. This covenant child of God. Through whom, told to the parents, according to the word of promise, in the covenant God has established with Abraham, would be the one that would be the covenant child. And God establishes His covenant, which ultimately points forward to Christ. And it still does, ultimately, point forward to Christ in our homes. Now, look at verse 7, if you will, in the Scriptures, and I will have you to turn to a couple of passages here, but let's think a little bit more about verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. Now, God establishes His salvific, restorative covenant with Abraham and his seed. And here we find the smallest covenant unit that the Bible reveals is the family, not the individual. It doesn't mean that God doesn't deal with individuals. Absolutely, He does. The covenant unit is the family, the household. Abraham is standing at the head of the household as God makes a covenant with him and with his household. The New Testament does call Abraham later the father of our faith. The Bible calls the church the household of God. And one reason it is so important to see that children are involved and included in this covenant will be seen in the coming pages of Scripture. What is clear is that God established a covenant with Abraham's seed. Not just Abraham. Abraham, this covenant I am making with you and your seed. To Abraham, promises were given. God promises Abraham certain and specific things, of which also are given to his children. That is why when the gospel is given to you, it is also given to your children. That is why when the covenant is established with you, it is established with your children. They must still individually embrace it by faith. But they are in the covenant. Like Isaac was. When the uniting church and family movement began some 20 plus years ago, it did not for the most part have a biblical theology that actually united the church and the family. In fact, the theology elevated oftentimes the family at the expense of the church, and it completely misses the purpose of God for the family in so doing it. A theology that doesn't see children in the covenant from their birth and part of the purposes of God in the world fails to unite the place of the family within the scope of the church in harmony with the biblical narrative that is restorative and redemptive. Let's look again closely at verse 7. 
God makes a covenant with Abraham and his seed. If we turn to Galatians 3.16, I want you to see how Galatians 3 relates exactly back to this cutting of a covenant in, in Genesis chapter 17. What I'm doing this morning is establishing a theological framework for the vision of the family. In Galatians 3.16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now this is the reason I've chosen to use the King James Version this morning to show from Genesis 17, 7, the continuity all the way into Genesis 3.16, because that word seed, it's not just descendants, it's not just children. There is a poetical uh, way in which the Scripture, the Holy Spirit, is using this word seed. The word seed is what we refer to as a collective plural noun. It can mean one, or it can mean many. It often refers to many seeds, as it was referring to that in Genesis 17.7. It is to Isaac, it's also to Jacob, in their generations, these promises of the Gospel are given, and the covenant is with them as well. The reason the Bible uses this collective plural, and why I read it in the King James, because this remains the collective plural consistent to even the original language, which has this collective plural of seed, is to see this poetic intention that God utilizes, and He marries two thoughts together in an inseparable unity between the seeds and seed. Seed and seed. In both its collective plural and its singular form. What we see in Galatians really here is the covenant, the eternal covenant that God the Father makes with God the Son. In Abraham and in his seed, which would be Isaac and Jacob and so on, in their generations, God establishes his covenant. And this was the covenant, however, that was worked out in history, the same covenant that God the Father had made with God the Son. For the redemption of His people. The same thing that we sing about in Psalm 110, when David says, Yahweh has said to my Lord, sit thou here at my right hand until I put all of your enemies under your footstool. And the Lord had promised to His Son that He would be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that He would reign in righteousness and His name would even carry with it kingdom of peace. Priest, king. And that relationship that we have, that covenantal relationship that God the Father established with God the Son, we find in Galatians 3, as God was cutting the covenant, or making this covenant with Abraham and his seed, Galatians is referring back to Genesis and showing that ultimately that relationship is pointing between God the Father and God the Son in eternity, an everlasting covenant that was worked out in history between Abraham and his seed, Isaac and Jacob and so forth. 
That is why Christ and His people are unified in this covenant as Christ is the head of the covenant and we, His church, His people, are brought into this covenant through Him only. And so we see here uh, in the narrative of the history of the redemption of this covenant, this being worked out, ultimately finding its fulfillment in Christ Himself. God the Father covenanted with the Son. And we see this in the posterity of Abraham. It will be in Christ that the covenant promises were fulfilled and the obligations of that covenant were met. It would be in Christ where the original covenant of Adam where he had broken and failed to obey that Christ would obey even to the point of death, even the death of the cross, so God would highly exalt Him above every name. It would be in Christ that He would be given a wife that we, are, we, we read as the church. We sing about this in Psalm 45, Christ and His church. We read about this in typological poetry in the Song of Solomon between Christ and in the church. And we see this clearly identified in Ephesians 5 when it's talking about husbands and wives, but he makes it very clear, but I'm talking about Christ and His church. The church would be the redeemed people of God in whom the image of God would be restored. Man and wife would come together and they would multiply. They would rule over the earth once again as rulers and priests. They would represent creation and be the royal priests of God here. They would multiply and fill the earth with the goodness of the glory of God. And that multiplication would happen through evangelism and discipleship as more of God's children are added to the family of God through faith and become children of Abraham by faith. So while Christ and the church or the ultimate reality of the family. Christian families are a microcosm of that relationship. They are a little world of Christ and His church. When a Christian husband and a wife have children, those children are God's children. And it's important for us to recognize and acknowledge that and own that right up front so we have a clear understanding. In Malachi, when it's speaking about husbands and how they are to, to love their wives in, in a way and not be harsh with them, it speaks of marriage as a covenant. And Malachi 2.15 says, but did He not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks a godly offspring, a godly seed. That's what God seeks. Children. This is the reason God included children in the covenant and He prescribed the sign of circumcision to be given to them. God would bring the fulfillment to the promises He made to Abraham through Abraham's seed. 
God would bring fulfillment to the promises that he made to Abraham through Abraham's children. So the covenant and the promises were as much to the children as they were to Abraham. When a child is born into a Christian home, that child is God's child. And we have a great privilege for a time to raise that child. God will use the children of believers to accomplish and fulfill what He has promised He will do in the future. Ultimately, pointing again to Christ. There is still much in our future that has yet to be fulfilled. We are living in the already, but not yet. Not yet completed or consummated or brought to its glory. When a child is born into a Christian home, he or she is also born into the church. The parents have the immediate responsibilities to raise the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But they are also members of the church, those children are. And so the church has responsibilities to ensure they are raised up in the Lord as well. We baptize our infants because they are covenant children and should be recognized as members of Christ's church and inheritors of the promises and be discipled in those very things. Our future depends on Christ working in and through our children. Have you thought about it that way? And yet He's promised what He began, He will complete it and bring it to its consummated end. This is the covenant reality and why it is so important to raise up our children well. Let's pause for just a moment in that particular thought about how the fulfillment that we long for still will be worked out in and through our children's lives. As we think about Hebrews 11, if you have your Bibles turned there, I want to point out a particular aspect that our future depends on Christ working in and through our children. And with that, He's given us promises to lay hold on. And those promises in which we are to live by faith activate in our lives that which brings them into the culture of Christ, teaching them and bringing them into this understanding of their covenant responsibilities and identity. And we can trust God that He will do that which He has promised. Just like Abraham trusted Him even in his son Isaac. It is all of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is that great passage of the heroes of the faith. It does tell us that apart from faith, and I think verse 6, that it is impossible to please God, for we must believe that God is, and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him by faith. So, when we come down to verse 9, by faith, He dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country. This is Abraham. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
This is why in John chapter 8, Jesus is saying to those Jews who were listening to him, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And he saw it through the eyes of faith, and he saw it through the, the promise of the covenant fulfilled by faith, as though already happened. Then we jump down to verse 39, and all of these, everybody he's just mentioned, including Abraham and Isaac and Samson and all the others, and all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Who are us? Us is their children. Covenant children in the faith in the same covenant which Abraham is called the father of faith in Romans 4 and Galatians chapter 3. It is us that they did not receive the complete fulfillment apart from us. And we will not receive the complete consummation fulfillment apart from our children who God will continue to use in bringing this grand narrative of the covenant that He is working to its glory in the new heavens and new earth. This covenant structure is so important to understand the vision of the family. To leave it out will, will grossly skew an understanding of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian aspects, church and family, and how both work in harmony. The Christian family is never in isolation from the covenant community, the church. The husband is never out from under the headship of Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. Right? I'm just connecting dots here. The wife is never out from the headship of her husband, which ultimately is Christ as well. But her earthly husband stands in a representative place. Now we tend to think in terms of the separate and distinct categories of jurisdiction of the family and jurisdiction of the church and jurisdiction of the state, all in their nice, tidy, categorized and separate compartments. You cannot separate those things biblically. Just like justification and sanctification are distinct doctrines, they are inseparable. And when you try to categorize them separately, you make a drastic error. So it is with biblical jurisdictions. The reason is because these jurisdictions are covenantal. They all spring from an original family with whom God made a covenant with Adam and his household. Eve was under that same covenant relationship by virtue that she was Adam's wife. Adam was the representative head of his family, and therefore he would have certain responsibilities associated with that headship. From there, everything else and all these things would emerge. Christ had to come, and he was the last Adam that then made it all right. He all he took. That old image that was marred, and he restored it, and and it is being restored. It is being restored in husbands, it is being restored in wives, it is being restored in children, it is being restored in the family. 
And so those things that look like were lost are now being restored back to its glory. When we consider 1 Corinthians 11, and if you have your passage of your Bible, turn with me there. Because there's some principles here I want us to understand. We're just kind of laying some groundwork this morning on some things that we'll address in specifics in coming weeks. 1 Corinthians 11, you may know, begins into a passage where the Corinthians, who had been riddled all about with divisions and schisms, all throughout the passage or this letter to the Corinthians, Paul's addressing these divisions in one form or another. He comes to chapter 11 and he goes to chapter 14 and he's talking about problems within their corporate worship. So that is the setting here, which he begins in chapter 11. But he's, this passage, as you may know, is that passage where it's teaching that a woman ought to have her head covered in corporate worship. But that's not really the focus in, of the exegesis this morning. I do want us to see some of these principles that are involved in that practice. Verse 3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Verse 7 says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from the woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Let me just stop right there and just remind you. I did not write that. I did not write that. Okay? I just read it. That's all I did. Just read it. Word of God. This is that passage which teaches us a very foreign application today, but which has been universally practiced for over 2,000 years from the time that it was written here all the way up into about the 1950s, that a woman should have her head covered in corporate worship. That has long been forgotten in the last 50 years, but not in the last 1950 before then. What we see here is while it's not time or the subject matter to exegete that passage, the point here is the principles used on which that application is based. There is no way that this passage could be teaching that head coverings were merely a cultural application in the context of first century Corinthian church. There's just no way because every one of the bases and everything Paul used here for the foundation of head coverings is rooted in creation design. He takes it all the way back to creation under the headship and the federal place of man and woman and the family. And right back before the fall, that's where it all has its meaning. Here again, we see covenantal principles of the family. Christ is the head of the man. Man is the head of the woman. God is the head of Christ. We see clearly these Trinitarian principles on display. Now I want you to hear this very clearly. 
in the ontological trinity, Christ is God, and no less than the Father is God, of the same substance, consubstantial, co-equal, of the same essence, God. In terms of the ontological trinity, which we, the word ontology has to do with essence or being, God and Christ are equal, as well as the Holy Spirit. In terms, however, of the economic trinity, in other words, the roles that they play, there is headship referring to the eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son and the roles that they would play in the redemption of mankind. That's why Jesus would say, I did not come to do my will, but my Father who sent me. And my Father loves me and shows me everything that He delights to do. There was perfect harmony in this trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so likewise with man and woman. Man and woman are equal, ontologically speaking, in their essence as humans created in the image of God. If there is one religion in the entirety of the world that has done more for the, the, the greatness and the equality of women, it is the Christian faith according to the Word of God. Ontologically. And if there's any religion in the face of the world that has done anything to help woman understand her role and her femininity and her beauty and her place, it's the Word of God speaking about the economic trinity. And it's the nature of God here that is being revealed to the world. And why the church and the pulpits are getting off on the subject and why they're being led by the world the very feminist movement that is out there in the world has borrowed from the Christian worldview and in the image of God that is marred, has marred and blinded it out of its original beauty and intention. And there's this harmony with all of that. You as a Christian family have the Word of God that can sanctify you. And when a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, and a woman loves how to reverence her husband as the church should Christ, as Christ did His Father. We have a beautiful glory. Ontologically, woman and man are equal in their essence, in the image of God. But in their economy, they are quite different. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad it's my wife who has to give birth and not me. And I will second that. I mean, I will say that my wife has said she is glad that she's the one and not me that had to give birth. We're different. If God's glory is going to be expressed in the world, each of our economic roles must be lived out according to God's design. Which, by the way, includes a woman wearing her head in corporate worship. Just can't leave that one since we're so close. That's exactly what the Scripture says. Why? Because God's glory is revealed through that covenantal structure. The head of Christ is God. The head of man is Christ. The head of the woman 
is man. And there's this covenantal economic structure. And it's His glory after all is what the family is about. So that the image of God can be reflected all over the earth and God's glory will cover the face of the earth as the waters do the sea. God establishes His covenant with man. The husband. The head of the household. He gives man the mission. He gives man the spiritual headship of his home. He brings woman alongside of him to help him in God's mission work. Together they fulfill God's given design. They bring forth children to the world. And the children continue the mission and multiply the breadth and the depth of that mission far beyond what simple man and woman could do. And when everything is working the way it's supposed to, the family, the smallest covenant unit in the church, not apart from it, builds the kingdom generationally. Abraham does his part. Sarah does her part in helping Abraham and what God has assigned to him. Children come along and they help the household fulfill what God had designed and planned. Isn't it interesting when Noah had three sons. You know, God made a covenant and he told Abraham, I told Noah, he said, look, I'm going to flood this world. My spirit will not dwell but for another 120 years. So Noah starts building the ark. 20 years he's into this. <sighs> Man, it's good. Yeah. He's getting a little older 20 years later. So what did God do? God sent him three sons. Born into his family. And those sons knew how to build an ark. Because they learned under the instruction of God through their father. And so the, the, all of them set, set a course to build this ark. A hundred more years went by. And now the whole family, including their wives, were then safely carried into the ark through the waters of God's trial and judgment. See, children are, are given to help the household fulfill what God has designed and planned. As children grow up, they must be taught and nurtured in the covenant. They must understand and embrace their identity and what their baptism identifies. As they later leave mom and dad and they marry a Christian spouse, for they should never be unequally yoked. Yeah? They will be better equipped to carry on the mission work that God has established in a new established household in the church, and never apart from it. Now, I want to bring some applications here to bear. And we'll conclude the message. Some applications. Husbands, you have the covenant responsibilities for your home. You stand in the place of a representative head of your home. The microcosm of Christ in the church, right? That is why wives are told to submit themselves to their husbands as, you can complete the sentence, as unto the Lord. Yeah, Fathers, raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not your agenda. It's the Lord's agenda. Husbands have to nurture their wives and children spiritually. In fact, that is their foremost responsibility. Spiritual nourishment in the covenant with Christ of their wives and children. That is your foremost responsibility as a husband. 
That is what husbandry is about. That's where the Word comes from. It comes from tending your garden. And husbands, you have a garden that you have to tend to. and You have to get the weeds out of the garden so the plant can flourish and bring forth fruitfulness. You have to prune the vines, which is never a pleasant thing, but even Christ does that with us so that we might bear forth more fruit. Husbands, you have to do the work of husbandry. Which means tending to your beautiful garden, wife and children. And failure here is where everything got off track to begin with. That spiritual leadership. Husbands, you must provide for your families. You are the spiritual leadership and the direction that your family needs for you. God works in your family through you. Not that He can't work and doesn't work through your children and wife apart from you, but He works in households. And that's why it's noticeable that when a head of household was saved in the New Testament, the whole household was getting baptized. That word household has a theological meaning and it's packed full of meaning here. Wives come alongside and they help their husbands in the ministry that God had given to him. Wives have different gifts and strengths and perspectives and all of those are to be embraced and used in the collective ministry of the home to accomplish God's objectives for the home in a narrative of God's redemptive history of which we're still a part of. And together, the husbands and wives, they raise godly children. Together, they show the Trinity at work in those economic roles. Children, hear me. You need to understand your place within the family and your identity in the church. We baptized you, many of you, before you could even know it or remember it. And yet we call on you to remember your baptism. Meaning, Trust and take heed unto the very thing in which you were identified from your birth. This includes learning. You need to learn. You need to be schooled. And that's why you're participating in your education and part of, as part of your upbringing. We are covenantally training you. You need to understand your role within the family and your identity in the church. Parents are to bring you up, instructing you in life and for your future life. They are to help you to mature and to grow in character and helping you navigate in life through waters that you have never tested before. Don't you think that you can navigate these tumultuous waters apart from the means of grace through your parents. And if you try, you're going to learn the hard way. And God will teach you many hard lessons. But see, you are also called to contribute to the household economy. The word economy is a word that comes from two Greek words. Interestingly, household, because that is a word that has... A lot of theology loaded with it. And management. It has the idea of management of a household. With the 
idea of production. Economy carries with it the idea of production with the management of the household. Let me just give you uh, the authority of Wikipedia here. It's a, it's a quote, but I think it's very applicable. I want you to think about this in terms of family, but the word that I looked up was economy. A given economy is the result of a set of processes that involves its culture, values, education, technological evolution, history, social organization, political structure and legal systems, as well as its geography, natural resource endowment, and ecology as main factors. Now, in your little household, your little uh, microcosm of the world, there's a set of values and a culture that is generated there. There's education and technological evolution. You're set in a place of history with the social organization around you and the church and the political and legal structures as well as the place of geography where we are today. And you are all a part of that household within that context for production. And it's important that you young people understand your roles within the family in which you live. You must contribute to the household economy. You must help your parents be productive in the God-given assignments and objectives that God has given to your home. And that in itself is part of your training and preparation for the future. See, your home is covenantal. We can't get away from that. It's actually a very beautiful thing. You can't simply go do your own thing without affecting somebody else. You must be producers of a godly Christian household. You must be about developing your own godly Christian character under your parents. And production is as much, if not more, about the development of your godly Christian character than anything else that you can do. And hear me, children and parents alike, each child should have his ministry in the church at some level. They are not just your own. They're God's. They're the church's. They're yours. They bear your last name. They bear the label of Christ. And they have a membership in His church. And the Scripture says, even a child is known by his doing. Even from suckling babes, he has ordained praise. And couples, let me encourage you. There was one time when I was, uh, Chesley and I were in young married before we had children and a minister came through and we were listening to him. He, he had a lot of children. I mean, tons of children. He had six kids. And that's how we thought about it back in those days. And I remember him once saying, as he counsels uh, young people, young singles, as they're thinking about marriage, he said that one way you can tell that a, a marriage is good and godly and set on the right course is if the ministry of these two singles will be more productive as a household than they were as individuals before they were married. In other words, what he's saying is, when is it time to get married? Is it the right person to get married? 
comes down to will their ministry together be greater than the sum of their parts? And I thought that was good counsel. Young people, God established your marriage not merely to continue the cycle, but to multiply it. You are to have children and see them as part of the kingdom growth. And that's not only your responsibility, it is also your great privilege. I remember in the same church, the pastor we didn't have children at the time, but he asked when we were about to join the church, is children in your intentions? I said, well, absolutely, because I will never marry any couple that I know who do not have plans for children. That was him. Uh, that was what he told me. Uh, you are to raise, you are to, you are to love children and pray for children. And you are to raise them as members of Christ's church and as God's children. There's going to be a time when you're going to release them and, and God will have brought their maturity up through you, but you will have to release them, but they will always be God's. And Lord willing, they will always be the churches. They may not always bear your last name. And you're raised them in a, in a particular way. I have observed far too many Reformed young couples get married and their ministry in the church subsides rather than grows. It becomes less than the sum of the parts. I see young people who as singles were very involved in the church and the ministry before they got married and after marriage they retreat to the margins of the church or the margins to their service in body. And that trajectory is heading in the wrong direction and your children and your marriage will greatly suffer, not to mention your grandchildren. And I've heard, yes, but now my, my ministry is to my wife and my children. That's nothing different than unbelievers would say who just got married, who have responsibilities for their wife and children. You hear me on this? We're called not to be like the world. You have to raise up your children in the sphere of the church and its ministry and not apart from it and certainly not on the margins. As we've considered the vision for the family this morning, we want to understand the proper theology that unites the family to the church and not to separate the two from each other or to create tensions between the two. It's a covenantal structure that is the relationship that God establishes with man from the beginning that has always been according to the Trinitarian way within the family. And family is the smallest covenant unit which God operates so every member of the household is involved and included in that special relationship. Even the suckling babes can come and somehow cry out their praise. When God establishes a covenant with man, it necessarily includes his wife and children. This is federal headship, covenant reality from Adam on, and in Christ continues. 
A family is a microcosm, a little world of Christ in His church, and we should never see tension between those two. Certainly never put it there where the Bible doesn't. And while they are distinct, we should never see them as separate or create harmful tensions between the two. Everyone has a part. Everyone has a role to play. And when those roles are in harmony, we see the glory of God and the beauty of holiness in the midst of it spreading over the face of the world as waters to cover the sea. Because we live in a fallen world that does not know any of these principles. And we do not live in homes of where this occurs naturally. None of us. This is not natural. But by the grace of God, they are redeemed and being restored and brought back in harmony with our relationships. And while they're not natural, we are to cultivate in our homes the character so they become second nature. And according to the great culture of Christ. God's vision for the family is much larger than a husband and a wife and a few kids and yeah, dog. It's broad and it's deep and it includes the present realities, but it also includes future promises. It includes inheritance. It includes glory, unity, diversity, mystery. Christ and His bride. Together they are growing God's kingdom in the world. And together they are reigning in a royal priesthood that will culminate at His bodily return where He will gather up all of His children as His inheritance. May He be praised and give us glory and wisdom and the grace and mercy that He designs in the family. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we pray that You would square us up with these truths of the Word and pray that You would discern with Your Word between the soul and the spirit, and cut asunder there where, where there needs to be change and growth. And as the plumb line of the truth is set against our lives, we see where we fall so short. We see in each one of our lives where we have room, much room to grow. But we also look back and we see your hand of grace. And not leaving us where you found us, but have brought us along in your great love as you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have loved us as a bride. You have taken us and you have washed us and cleansed us and made us a completely new creation. And we're thankful for the redemption that we have in Christ who is our husband and who is our head of the church. I'm thankful that we are inseparably united together with our head, with our husband. As we come around this table here in just a few minutes, we come as the bride comes in union with husband. And the two will become one flesh. In that resurrected body which Christ has arose and He has entered into the presence of God and sits at His right hand, but yet still clothed in flesh and blood. We now come into the deep recesses of heaven into the holy of holies with Him in this beautiful relationship as we come together in oneness around the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
as he has evidenced his resurrection even by bidding his disciples to give him food to eat and water to drink. Here we now have bread to eat and wine to drink together with our Lord, uniting the two together in this sacred mystery. And so grant, O Lord, we pray that as we come to this table, that you sanctify our homes, the leadership of our fathers and husbands, the help meet of our wives, the compliance of our children, and may we see your glory in our homes restored here this day. In Jesus' name, amen.